All right, that was uh, that was amazing. I guess is what. Uh, all I gotta say is, uh, you got a bunch of white people to spontaneously come out of their pews and start clapping, and it wasn't a football game. Like that was. I think it's a first in RUF. So that really, thank you. That was honoring to Jesus. Uh, made me want to worship. So thank you. Uh, Look, what we're going to do uh, tonight, even though it's special to hear, we're still going to do what we do every week, and we're going to open God's Word, uh, because it's what we need. And we're going through the Gospel of John this whole semester, and we're investigating John's claim that these events that he recorded, he recorded for this purpose, so that you may see them and believe on Jesus' name, and that by believing you may have life. And so we've been investigating and considering how does Jesus bring real life to us. And tonight is John 19, and it is hard to oversell what this chapter means. Because if you read read through the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps talking about his hour. My hour. I've got to get to my hour. And he has this singular focus that he's committed to his hour. Well, the hour... Is the, is, the, is the hour of his death, his crucifixion, and then resurrection. Which means the hour is here. It is not an overstatement to say that all of world history was building up to this moment, 2,000 years ago, and all of world history hinges on what happens right here. That's what John claims. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, this is your word, and you give it to us because you love us. Um, we simply would not know you unless you revealed yourself to us. We would not know how good and loving and merciful you are unless you had given us your word. And most of all, unless the word had become flesh and lived and died for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the time that we just experienced where the voices of praise mixed with the angels and the saints before us in heaven. And we pray now that as we look at your word that you would change us uh, by your grace, uh, that we would leave more amazed with the beauty of Jesus. No matter what sin we bring into here, no matter what shame, no matter what confusion, we would believe that you are good. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Alright, this is John 19. It's on your uh, handout too, uh, or your, if you have your Bible. This is God's Word. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garment and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and quotes from the Psalms here, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God it stands forever. Okay, what I want to consider with you tonight is just two things about the death of Christ. First, the death of Christ is for all. Second of all, that the death of Christ is a finished salvation for all. All right, first, the death of Christ is for all. This is verse 20, uh, 16 through 22. Look, Jesus is sentenced to execution right before, uh, right before these verses by Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders. And verse 18 just simply tells you, very simply, without the gory details, which should tell you something because the focus is what Jesus did for us. He hung on a cross between two other people. And then John focuses you on one thing. He wants you to see this sign. That Pilate wrote a sign and hung it over Jesus' head. And the sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that was meant to mock Jesus. To make him a public laughingstock. But did you see how John noticed that it's written in three languages? Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Which were the three languages of the world, essentially. Hebrew, the religious language. Uh, Latin was the secular political language. And Greek was the worldwide commercial language of the economic class. And so picture this. This is what you have to picture. Jesus, this weak, dying, bloodied man hanging on a cross with a sign above his head in all the languages of the world saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in order to mock him. Look at your king, dying. But here's the question. Was Pilate's sign right? It was. Could the one hanging there, weak, bloodied, dying, actually be a king? Yes. And this is one of the great ironies of John. That what Paul meant, I mean, what uh, Pontius Pilate meant as a cruel mockery, the Lord of this universe is weaving to push forward the truth of who King Jesus is. Behold the sovereignty of God. Behold the power of the gospel. Even Pilate's evil plans will, will, will hold forth and proclaim the reality of who Jesus is. What kind of king is this that is weak, bloody, beaten with a sign over his head in all languages that encompass the whole world? It must be a king who has come to save the world. It must be a king who has come to rescue the nations of every tribe, tongue, and nation united under him to worship. That must be who it is. It must be a cosmic king. What kind of king is hanging on a cross between two criminals? It must be a king that is willing to be numbered with sinners. That is willing to literally hang with sinners. And this is Jesus, the righteous one, the pure one. And yet he's a king that identifies so closely with us so closely with our sin and our grime that he is willing to hang with us. What kind of king is this? It is a king who uses his power not to oppress us, 
Not to shame us, but to save us and to rescue us. There is no king like this. That's the irony of what, what Pilate is doing. Look, if um, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, there's a, there's a pretty famous statue that you've probably seen pictures of. If you watched the Olympics, uh, was that a year and a half ago? It was on every day. It's called Christ the Redeemer statue. And it's this giant 98-foot statue of Jesus on a mountain with his arms opened to shower blessings on the city. Here's the problem with that statue. It's a lie. You know why it's a lie? Because at the foot of that mountain is, the, is one of the world's largest, most violent, poverty-stricken slums in the world. If you don't know what kind of king Jesus is, he is a, not a Jesus who stands aloof from the mess and grime of this world and casts down blessings. He is a God who became like us and came into the slums and took on poverty and took on sin and took on violence and took on death and stood with us and absorbed it so to defeat it. Somebody, somebody needs to push the statue off the mountain into the slums. That's what Jesus is like. That's who he is. This is Jesus. This is the king incarnate Jesus dying for the sins of a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And look, we always try to say this. I I hope if you're skeptical of Christianity that you come to RUF and investigate because we're glad that you're here. And here's what I would ask you to consider. You have to come up, if if you're skeptical of Christianity, you have to come up with an explanation for this thing called the church. And maybe that surprises you, but this is something that a guy named Tim Keller talks about. Look, where is the geographic and cultural center of, of every other world religion? Have you ever thought about this? Where's the ge- geographic and cultural center of Islam? It's in the Middle East. It's where it started. It's where Muhammad was born, in Mecca. It's still there. Yes, of course Islam has spread, but the majority and the cultural center has still not gone out the bounds of the Middle East. Where is the geographic and cultural center of Buddhism? India, East Asia, Southeast Asia, where Buddha was born and lived. Yes, Buddhism has spread, but still it has not worked its way out of the cultural and region of where it began. You ready for this? What about Christianity? Where is the cultural and geographic center of Christianity? Today. Man, now that's an interesting question. It started in the Middle East, where Jesus was born, died, and resurrected. But by the third, actually by the fifth through the seventh century, it had overtaken the Roman Empire. And the center was now in kind of southern Europe and North Africa. Then by the time you get to the 16th century, you know where the center of Christianity is? The face of Christianity? It's Western Europe. And then by the time you get to 18th century, it's, it's kind of Western Europe, the United States, South America. Do you know where the center of Christianity is now, culturally, geographically? This shocks a lot of Americans. It's not the United States. Shocking. We're not the center of the world, right? I know we all think we are. 
The cultural and geographic center of Christianity, most people now say, is in China, where there are just multitudes that almost cannot be numbered, and in Africa. Sociologists say that now the average Christian, the face of Christianity, you ready? Is a 40-year-old African woman. That's the center of Christianity. Now, why is that? Now, there could be a lot of factors. But couldn't it be this? That Christianity is not a product of any culture. It's not a man-made religion. It is a religion from above that comes down and commends and condemns something in every culture and moves about. If you are a Christian, you, you are a part of the world's greatest multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class, multicultural, worldwide movement in all of history called the church. And if you're not a Christian, you've just got to come up with a better explanation of how that happened other than the fact that Jesus is king who died with a sign above his head declaring his love for all the nations. This is who Jesus is. And what that means is this. At least this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to want what Jesus wants. And look, we're, we're going to put on our big boy pants and say some hard things, okay? Um, John in the gospel, has, he has hit this theme on its head from John 2 when he clears out the temple because of, honestly, cultural racism. And as Jesus hung under a multilingual sign, Jesus is saying, I want the gospel to go out to all the nations and bring down every social, racial, and economic barrier and form a new people under the banner of Jesus. This is where the evangelical church in America lost its voice. And probably why the center of Christianity ended up leaving the United States. Why? And look, I'm speaking to myself. Are you ready? It's because... White Christians who were in power, instead of following Jesus and giving away power and giving away comfort so as to bring people in and share power and share the gospel, forced a segregated church, forced a segregated country. And if you don't want what Jesus wants, you're missing it. Because the blame for what's going on largely falls on people like me. And if you don't care about that, you don't care about what Jesus cares about. And look, I'm not saying this to, like, to beat you up. I'm saying, look at Jesus. The crucified one under the sign of all nations who is a king who lost everything to win us. And the way forward is Jesus. The one who made himself low to bring everyone in. And what that means is this. Look, on that day when Jesus returns, Jesus is not going to ask you if you stood for the national anthem. Whatever you feel about that, okay? It's great if you do. He doesn't care. Jesus is going to ask you, did you stand with the oppressed and the marginalized? That's where the heart of Jesus is. That's why Jesus came and lost every, everything to, yes, unite people to himself, but also a people to each other of all different backgrounds. 
on the ground of humility and grace. So first, Christ's death is for all. But second of all, Christ's death is a finished salvation. This is verse 23 through 30. If you thought the sign of above Jesus' head was ironic, look at what John records. Jesus saying right before he finally dies, verse 28 through 30, he announces, he, he's so thirsty, his, 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 lips are, his throat is so parched, he asks for sour wine, he moistens his parched throat, and he cries out one last thing, it is finished. It's the Greek word to telestai. It's a word that literally means it is paid, it is finished, it is accomplished. Since the irony, here is hanging a bloody, weak, dying man on a cross, and what he cries out is a yell of triumph. That's strange. Everything looking at Jesus, it looks like he's being defeated, it looks like he's being used and abused. But he's actually crying out a cry of victory. That he did something. What is Jesus saying when he announced it is finished? It's everything John's been talking about. John, everywhere in John, Jesus is saying, I've come to do the will of my Father. Everything that Jesus did was in accordance with the will of God the Father. And what was the will of the Father? 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Did you hear it? Jesus came to reconcile us to God. And so in his last breath, he says, it's finished. I've done it. I've accomplished all the work required to bring us to God. And look, that means at least two things. One... It means the curse of sin is finished. When he says it's finished, he means the guilt and curse of sin is done. See, the Bible says we have a deep problem, and the problem is not out there only. The problem is in here. It's my sin. And I'm a bigger sinner than I want to admit. We've sinned against God, and according to the Bible, the wages of sin is death. We have accumulated an enormous and infinite death because our sin is against an enormous and infinite God. And He's the one who has loved us and made us. And the, penalty, the just penalty for our turning from the one who loved us and made us, when we turn from life itself, we choose death. It is the just consequence. And eternal death is God's wrath. And so the Bible says we have two options. I know this isn't easy to talk about, but we either pay for our sin or God does it in Jesus. And the words of Jesus saying it is finished, it's good news. Because it's on the cross of Jesus, he paid the debt of our sin in full. In full. He finished it. He finished the payment of all the wrath of God that we deserve for what we've done. So that there's none left for you. You got to kind of think of it this way. Let's say that you committed a horrible crime. Mass murder. And you go before the trial and you get convicted and you get sentenced to death row. And the judge looks at you and says this. You're clearly guilty. Justice must be served. I'm giving you the death penalty. You hang your head. And then the judge says this. There's actually someone that's volunteered to die in your place. You think, who in the world would do that? 
And the judge takes off his robes and goes to death row himself as your substitute. That is Jesus, the judge, the king. says, I will take the punishment for what you and I deserve in full. And justice is served on Jesus. So if you've trusted Christ's death in your place, you know what's amazing? Is God's justice is now for you. Right? First John says, if you confess your sins with the mouth, he is faithful and merciful. No, faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Isn't that amazing? Because if Jesus paid for your sins, it would be unjust for God to require payment from you for your sins. Even our earthly courts don't allow double jeopardy. And of course the justice of God doesn't. And what that means is if Jesus has finished salvation by taking the curse, it means there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. That's what Romans 8, 1. None. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you do tomorrow. You will not come back under condemnation. Ever. Jesus took it. He took the guilt of your sin and he finished it. And I really want some of you to consider this because some of you, You live not in light of Jesus' finished work. If you've trusted in Jesus, His death is your death. You'll never come under condemnation. But some of you live like this. If I don't start getting my act together, if I don't get my prayer life in line, if I don't start taking my relationship with God more seriously, if my quiet times don't get better, if I I don't get my addictions under control, I don't know what God's going to do to me. Do you hear the language of that? That eventually God's going to get tired of me? He's going to get disappointed in me? The inner dialogue that's going on, you know what that's saying? It's looking at God and saying, not finished. Not finished. You feel like you have to keep appeasing God by your behavior. And you're going to come back under condemnation. False gospel. Not true. You can't control God by your behavior. You either stand before God in your own works or you stand before God in Christ. Those are your two options. We deserve cursing, but Jesus took the curse for us. And that's why if someone ever tries to get you to quit sinning by saying something like this, look, every time you sin, you drive the nails deeper into Jesus' hands, trying to whip up kind of pain and sorrow... You tell that person to shut up. It's not true. There's no more payment. There's no more additional suffering from Jesus. He finished it. And it's actually rejoicing in that that will make you start beating sin finally. And how good he is. The other thing that he finished is he says your shame is finished. Verse 23 through 27. John tells us that when Jesus was crucified, as was custom, the executioners would take possession of whatever the belongings of the victim was. And here they are gambling for his clothes, even the last seamless garment. And what that means is Jesus is crucified naked. Completely naked. Why would Jesus be crucified naked? You see, if you ever see a picture of Jesus or, I don't know, you like, you like watch, a, you watch a movie... They never show you this. They, they, he always has like a loincloth. It's as if they're saying it's just too embarrassing, too shameful to show Jesus like that. But that's the point. 
He is taking our shame. You see, ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and we were separated from God, nakedness becomes a symbol of shame. Why? Because shame is that deep down feeling that says, if you were to see me, if you were to really see all of me, you would not like what you see. And you wouldn't want to connect with me. You'd reject me instead of love me and accept me. And so shame follows us all. And what Adam and Eve did when, when shame became, their, uh, became a reality is they hid themselves in fig leaves. And we've all been doing this ever since. We all have shame. We all have things in our life where we think, if you really knew this, if you really knew this about me, you wouldn't want to be with me. You wouldn't connect with me. And we try to cover in so many silly ways. Right? We live in in an Ole Miss culture that says you have to have a certain image, beauty, to be accepted. And what that means is you'll feel shame if you have a certain body type or you gain a certain amount of weight. And you will deal with the shame either by mocking that, making fun of it, acting like you don't care, or dieting, maybe some sort of eating disorder or getting, in, getting into starting to work out. That's the only way you can deal with it. In, an, in a culture that prizes being able to socially connect and be relational with anyone and everyone, you will feel shame if you're socially awkward. You'll actually probably feel shame if you're an introvert. And you'll begin to hate your personality. And the way that you'll begin to cover is you'll either just retreat from everyone and sit in loneliness, or you'll fake it and give yourself to a fun, carefree life and hide in addictions of alcohol or drugs or whatever it is that makes you feel okay in social settings. But it's not taking away the shame. And you can go on and on. There are all these ways that, yes, it's coming out of us and the culture is saying you've got to be this or you're going to feel shame. And Jesus is crucified naked and he never had anything to be ashamed of. Ever, ever. He's the only person that has ever lived where all of his thoughts and actions and motives could could be publicized to the whole world and there's nothing to be ashamed of. Yet there he is, dying. As a symbol of shame. Why? He must be absorbing my shame. And your shame. And he is. And he has finished it. And the key to actually beginning to relate to each other. So that we get reconciled. Is to believe that Jesus has taken my shame. And so I start letting you into the real me. And what I struggle with. Because Jesus has taken it. And you start believing that he... Hebrews 2, you know what it says? It says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Isn't that amazing? Because I don't even like myself sometimes. But Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Jesus was stripped of all dignity so you could be covered in his beauty and righteousness. That's who he is. And John is making you see that. And the call of the finished work of Christ is saying this. Stop trying to fix yourself. Stop trying to cover your shame. 
And let his death, his beauty, his finished work cover you. And I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, Brian, you don't know what I've done. You, you don't know what's been done to me, which is even worse because it wasn't even your fault and you feel shame. You're right, I don't know. But Jesus does. And he's not ashamed of you. You can trust him. During March Madness um, a few years ago, uh, Michigan State... Uh, was highly ranked, and they went out early uh, in the tournament again. And um, Ole Miss is going to make the tournament, by the way, in basketball. This, Ole, the basketball team is going to be our saving grace in, in sports. I'm predicting it. You heard it right here. Prophetic. Um, and after Michigan – I don't even know what, how I got on that. I'm sorry. Um, my, I sound dealing with my shame. Um, so, but after the loss, it was really interesting. The camera panned out. So you have, you're right, you have Michigan State, mad that they've, you know, that they've gotten upset. And there's this dad waving a huge sign over his head, smiling, and it read, number 10 is my son. And there was number 10 of Michigan State, one of the ones who actually kind of lost the game, walking off in failure. And there's his dad still holding the poster saying, number 10 is my son. Everyone in here, everybody knows what it feels like to blow it, to really mess up and experience the shame of failure. And the answer is to look at the cross. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's holding the sign saying, I'm not ashamed to call you mine. I don't care what you did. And so Jesus says it is finished. All guilt is finished. All all the curse is finished. All shame is finished. Everything that is required to make you right with God Jesus accomplished and finished it. You just have to receive it by faith. You just have to put down your pride and accept the grace of Jesus. Jesus brings life by accomplishing a full salvation. What people say is, you know what Buddha's last words were? Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words are, it is finished. Let me ask you this. What describes you honestly? Honestly. Do you feel like you're striving without ceasing? Or do you think like you're daily collapsing into the finished work of Jesus and saying that he's enough? Most of us say we're Christians, but we practically live like we're Buddhists. Trying to do enough, trying to appease God, trying to make sure he likes me. It's just not true. The gospel is that Jesus accomplished salvation for you, not that you accomplished something for God. The gospel is that Jesus' love saved you, not your love for God saves you. The gospel is that Jesus' amazing work saves you, not your amazing work for Him. And that is a sure resting place. If you know that you're a messed up sinner, that's your hope. This is the hope of the gospel. This is how I'll end. The only hope to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to each other is this. A bloody, crucified Jewish Savior hanging under a sign that proclaims Him as the King of the whole world. If you get that, that has to make you willing to lose power, comfort, control, so as to be reconciled to one another. Because at the cross is a place of sheer, unending grace where sinners are welcome. Actually, only sinners are welcome. That's it. 
So I'll end with this invitation. Jesus said in John 12, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Jesus is lifted up on a cross tonight. That's what we're talking about. He will either attract you or he'll repel you because you're repelled by grace. But you will not stay neutral. Which is it? It is finished. Just receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of salvation that he offers to us all. Lord, many of us have, uh, have believed that. Many of us are in Christ. And yet we just live constantly feeling guilty and full of shame and not believing that you have taken it. So would you bring real rest to this place tonight? Would you help people to see that you are a good and merciful and powerful Savior? Would you help us to believe that you're more gracious and and your mercy is more abundant than our greatest sin? Would you help us to, to repent? To repent of the ways that we don't love other people. To repent of the ways that we're ashamed of you because you're not ashamed of us. And that'd be great if we could see and receive that tonight. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. We're doing new things, all right? This could be this could be terrible. I'm going to admit that, all right? But on the back, here's how we're going to end. Obviously, we usually end with a song. There's a thing called a doxology, all right? This is a song that Christians have sang for about 2,000 years. So we're going to stand. I cannot sing. I'm going to try to lead us in singing. If you know it, I need you to sing. If not, you'll pick it up. You'll be dismissed after that. Don't forget, there's hot chocolate in the back. Hang around. Say hey to the gospel choir. Meet people. I can't believe I'm trying to lead singing. Here we go. Praise God.